Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the EQ Elevator podcast. Today, I am honored and excited to have a guest who I met on LinkedIn, Frank Riccardi. Do I pronounce your name correctly, Frank? Uh, it's Riccardi, but close enough. Riccardi. I, am, I like to show off my Italian accent. <laughs> I know. And Frank is a well-experienced C-suite leader. He has worked for over 20 years in the healthcare sector as privacy, data, and compliance expertise. He's also the author of Mobilizing the C-Suite, Waging War Against Cybercrime and Cyber Attacks, the official title, but it's actually for board members and anyone in a governance senior leadership position and data privacy expert. So for Frank today, I changed my background. Now you no longer look into my living room, but only into the Brussels <laughs> decoration. And when I look at your LinkedIn, Frank, I also see audio file and vinyl record. Now I am going to be very frank today and yeah. I may get embarrassing aha with some other people, but what does that mean? I didn't Google it and I didn't ask ChatGPT. <laughs> Good. Good for you. I'm, I'm glad because when you don't ask chat GPT, we can actually have a conversation. Exactly. Exactly. Talk to each other. So an audiophile is somebody that likes vinyl records and actually prefers the sound of analog music to the sound of digital music. So when you have your Apple iTunes, that's digital and it's perfection. It's just perfect. And But with the vinyl records, you get the pops, the cracks, the grooves. You get a lot more warmth. And so some people actually like the, the sound of vinyl better than digital. Now, the problem with vinyl, though, is they're big. You have big vinyl albums and they take up a lot of space yeah. versus you can put a thousand albums on your iTunes and it takes up no space at all. But there's a true joy in, in listening to analog music, the warmth, again, the pops, the cracks, the errors, the imperfections, as opposed to just pure digital music. And when I said I'm a vinyl record hoarder, it was really a joke. I prefer to say I'm a hobbyist. On the other hand, when I see how many vinyl records I actually have, sometimes I wonder, am I really a hobbyist or am I a hoarder? So it's a little bit of a joke. <laughs> yeah. No, I love it. I was actually the other day in a supermarket and I still said they had these, you know, these records where they play with yeah. the, I don't know, even <laughs> how many machine calls. And I was thinking they're still selling it. Like no one is buying it, but they're still selling it. So it just... Actually, if we link it back to cybersecurity and all the changes that are happening fast and how we are used to dealing with cybersecurity and the typical threats and how they have evolved and this resistance to change as well and to holding on to what is familiar, which is a human uh, trait as well. And I'd love for you to introduce yourself a little bit further and based on your own experience as a C-suite leader and your work now, and especially how you see you know, their involvement when it comes to cybercrime. I think before the CISO was uh, a prominent role, not as prominent as it is now. And I don't necessarily refer to it as from a point of view of um, uh, vanity, but from a point of view of liability. Right. And that we have seen Sullivan's case, uh, Uber's uh, former CISO being criminally charged for the first time and with this new regulation. So... I only see this expanding also on the, in the C-suite level. So I'd love to hear your insight because a lot of 
times you read that C-suite doesn't know about cyber, doesn't want to know about cyber, which I'm careful about. I think we need to look at things from people's map of the world. So sure. please, sure. I will shut up now. No, please. First of all, it's an honor to be on your uh, podcast. So thank you for inviting me. I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, my background, I've been in the healthcare compliance and privacy field for 25 years. Uh, I worked as chief compliance and privacy officer for large healthcare systems that owned hospitals and physician practices and Medicare Advantage plans. And uh, just over the, the decades, was uh, deeply involved in managing privacy breaches uh, and then later ransomware cyber attacks. Um, and uh, I just over the years, I developed a deep expertise in cybersecurity. And um, I wrote a book, uh, Mobilizing the C-Suite, Waging War Against Cyber Attacks. And I wrote the book because I wanted to help C-Suite leaders and board members and even investors and in companies understand uh, their accountability for the cybersecurity program, uh, as well as uh, their accountability to help the CISO uh, repel cyber attacks. Um, a big part of the book and something that I passionately believe in is the C-suite and the board members, they can't do their job to be accountable for cybersecurity unless they're steeped in the basics of cyber hygiene. And they also have to have some understanding of how cyber criminals actually attack them. So they they have to know the common attack vectors. Now, I don't say that board members and C-suite uh, leaders who come from different places, they might be in marketing, they could be in human resources, uh, legal or finance, they might hate IT. They might just, oh my God, I can't stand it. But you don't have to be a geek or a real cyber person to know the basics of cyber hygiene. Uh, you don't have to be a geek or a super cyber person to understand some of the common attack vectors. And again, my thesis and why I wrote the book is large companies, small companies, the C-suite and the board members, they are accountable for their cybersecurity program, and they will not be able to have an effective cybersecurity program unless they have at least some basic knowledge of both cyber hygiene and common attack vectors. I, I love what you all said, and it just reminded me of a very small anecdote. So I, I do yoga several times a week, and the Yoga room is supposed to be very zen and mindful, but they uh, changed their app recently. So they have a new app. And when we uh, introduce a new IT platform, or IT technology, the user experience is quite important. But in the beginning, it's a bumpy ride. And mm -hmm. you will be surprised how fast the yogis who are supposed to be zen turned into dinosaurs. And like they were attacking the receptionist and like, why is it not working? Not so you just see actually the, 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 first of all, the image you have about IT and how that actually adds to the stress of these people, which adds to the risk of cyber. And second, how dependent we are on technology and how that plays into cyber criminals' hands. I don't know what, what your view is on that. Yeah, absolutely. Because cyber criminals will take that dependency and they'll exploit it. And it all goes to the, the, the old saying of the human factor is the weakest link in cybersecurity. And all it means is humans are not robots. We make mistakes. Humans are not designed to memorize 100 passwords. So guess what? What We like to reuse our passwords, and that makes us vulnerable to credential stuffing. And yeah. humans are not really designed to remember strong passwords of 15 or 20 or 30 characters and lengths and upper letters and lowercase and symbols and all of that. So we don't like to use strong passwords. We want to use weak passwords 
and that opens up to brute force attacks. So you're exactly right. Cyber criminals, they exploit our reliance on technology and the human factor to, to launch cyber attacks and, and make us victims. And you mentioned something that, you know, when C-suite, they think of IT and then and they don't want to deal with it. And what I have in my experience, and I, I'd love to have your view, is I also developed this uh, demo on ransomware resilience through emotional intelligence. And I, I also shared it with some experts to get feedback uh, on it. And one of the feedback, which was very interesting, and I'd love to have your thought and, and how this is going to evolve. And he was like, Nadia, I think you're absolutely right on how emotionally self-aware some leaders are, but you are going to deal with some alpha personalities. You mm -hmm. can't write it that way. And then me, for with my Dutch directness and hand, I was thinking, are we now concerned about personalities, even though I'm very diplomatic when I write that in NATO, or are we concerned in protecting them for, so I'd love to hear your view on first, on how do you actually see the use of emotional intelligence, which is basically understanding how criminals use emotions of fear, emotions of dopamine, emotions of trust, our emotional needs to actually increase the human surface attack, but also how do you see this a change in perspective and what needs to happen for C-suite leaders, alpha personalities, to humble themselves in a way and say, okay, we really need to look at this because I can put my company at risk as well if I don't sure. integrate this. Well, if you will allow me, Nadja, I'm about to humble them right now with a story. Great. <laughs> okay. So uh, if there's any uh, C-suite leaders, board members, or investors uh, listen up. I love to talk about uh, one of the most infamous cyber attacks of all time involving Colonial Pipeline. Yes. And just to set the table for your viewers and your listeners, Colonial Pipeline is a mammoth pipeline operator in the United States. They have 5,500 miles of pipeline along the East Coast of the United States, actually stretching from Texas all the way to Maine. And in 2021, at the height of the global pandemic, I think we were dealing with the Delta variant at the time. They were struck by a, a massive cyber attack. And the cyber criminals infected their billing systems, but the colonial pipeline leaders were, were worried that they were actually going after the pipeline system. So what did they do? Abundance of caution, they shut down the pipeline. Now, the pipeline was shut down for about a week, which was a big crisis because there was a gas shortage. And when you could find gas, it was very expensive, but you couldn't fill up your SUV. So there's congressional hearings, there's a journalistic investigations, and the public finds out that the, the, the reason that the cyber attack was successful was a failure to implement basic cyber hygiene uh, on the part of the Colonial Pipeline leadership. For example, uh, during the pandemic, Colonial Pipeline, like many companies, allowed their employees to work from home. So they set up uh, virtual private networks, VPNs, so employees could remote in. So they had an employee that left the organization, got a job somewhere else, and that it's believed that employee reused their colonial pipeline password for another online account. Somehow cyber criminals got that password. It might have been breached and, and sold on the dark web. And they took that stolen reused password and they stuffed it into the VPN account and it worked. So there was another mistake that uh, a lot of companies, when employees leave the organization, they terminate the employee's access to the systems, but Colonial Pipeline didn't do that. They had that VPN was live. 
And so it was essentially a credential stuffing attack with a stolen reused password. And even worse, uh, the, the VPN network was not protected by multi-factor authentication. Had MFA been enabled, the cyber attack would have failed because the cyber criminals wouldn't have had the one-time numeric code to get in. So here's uh, where the, the C-suite leaders may want a little bit of humility. Um, the public learns all this through congressional hearings, and they're furious. And there's a new zeitgeist now throughout the world. And the zeitgeist is this. When there's a cyber attack, the public and regulators and politicians, they're really angry at the cyber criminals. But if they find out that cyber attack was successful because of, of a failure to take into account basic cyber hygiene, you didn't close that VPN when the employee left the organization. You didn't protect that VPN with MFA. Maybe you're not installing patches, whatever. If, if it was a, a failure in cyber hygiene, the public is now just as angry at the C-suite and the board as they are at the cyber criminals. And so C-suite leaders really need to understand, and I think many of them do now, that their jobs are on the line if there's a cyber attack and it harms the company, and they may have personal liability as well. And getting into emotional intelligence, I love the ebook, the e-guide that you wrote that you recently released that talked about emotional firewalls. Because one of the things it's my that passion, I- My uh, passion project since several years now, yeah. and now it's yeah. getting traction. In the beginning, people were laughing at me, but now it's cool. We are interested. <laughs> it's very apropos because in this case, C-suite leaders or board members uh, are very well um, aware of their liability and their accountability, but many of them are afraid. Now, when you have fear involved, when you have that fear emotion and you don't have the self-awareness to realize it, but when you have that fear, you may create an ad hoc cybersecurity program that's just full of holes like Swiss cheese, or you're going to have analysis paralysis and not create a program at all. And how you remove the fear is by building these emotional firewalls. And, and what I say in my book is if you understand just the basics of cyber hygiene and some of the basic attack vectors, that fear will dissipate. It'll be replaced with understanding and knowledge. And you will be able to create a cybersecurity program that's tailored to your company that will repel cyber attacks. I love everything you said, and I couldn't agree more. And uh, I, I do have a follow-up question, but uh, I think also when we look at the emotional firewalls, so the emotional intelligence model that then can help people build emotional firewalls, one of the challenges is how we view ourselves from a functional perspective. And this is where the fear comes in and, and also the stress, because as a CEO, for example, or chief marketing officer, they have a certain view on what their function is and what their role is supposed to be. And then how they view cybersecurity is something perhaps too complicated or right. something that is so vast and Pandora box, we don't want to deal with that, but we're also not going to admit it as well. So there, and what I always say, this causes a lot of stress, invisible stress, mm -hmm. because of the invisible fear, which many leaders and people are not aware of, which actually makes us less focused and less alert and less able to reflect. One of the things I do and help and promote is to not only look at the visible stressors, the workload, the deadlines, the meetings, aligning everyone on the same page, understanding the risk profile, but the invisible ones, which is quite sensitive, right? Because it's it 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 touches our core, our and emotions are involved, and especially if you're not taught to 
feeling your emotions. A lot of times you're, when you're very analytical people or very rational people, uh, when you deal with emotions, it's quite uncomfortable. Even if you're not the one very relaxed, if you have someone else who, who has low levels of impulse control, this is what I say. When you have this tabletop exercises, you take a cup of tea, you go through the incident response plan. John, Mary, Fatima, Mohammed, everyone is happy. But what happens when there is actual crisis going on and the manager or the leader start losing it, is screaming, and then people either have an adverse or shut down reaction and they actually increase the risk for further vulnerability. So these are all the things that maybe we're not comfortable milking in because it comes with discomfort. But the more we do, the less discomfort we will actually uh, feel in the end and the more prepared we are. I think, I think education and awareness of the C-suite is important. I think going through cases, like when I'm talking to the C-suite, I talk about the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack. I talk a lot about different cyber attacks as well. And what I show is how these cyber attacks happened, not because the cyber criminals were necessarily brilliant, but because the company had a flaw in their cyber hygiene, something that they weren't doing that was easily exploitable. For example, the Colonial Pipeline, all they had to do was shut down that VPN network when the employee left the organization, cyber attack would have been thwarted. If they had taught that employee a basic cyber awareness, don't reuse your passwords, cyber attack might have been thwarted. If they enabled MFA, cyber attack would have been thwarted. I can go on and on. Installing patches, some companies have had ransomware cyber attacks because they failed to install a patch to a vulnerability that was known for months. Everybody knew the, 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 it was vulnerable. Uh, the patch was out there a long time, but this, they just didn't install it. So it's these basic failures in cyber hygiene is where some of the biggest cyber attacks in history have happened. So I try to bring them along that way. And then I also try to explain to them, as I just explained to you, we had the conversation about the, how the public views the C-suite and board members and even investors now that they don't just blame the cyber criminals. Now they're blaming the C-suite and the board for the cyber attack because their cyber attacks have been going on for, for decades and they're not stopping and they're getting even worse. And people are, you mean, you could have enabled multi-factor authentication and you didn't. And that's why we have a cyber attack. So it's uh, one of the reasons I really stress an understanding of basic cyber hygiene. And also I, I teach C-suite leaders and, and board members how cyber criminals conduct attacks. For example, one of the examples I, I give is the bad USB. It's just a USB drive stuffed with malware. And all a cyber criminal does is just throw it on the parking lot. And an employee will pick it up and just wondering what's on it, stick it in the computer port and inject ransomware into the network. Now, you don't have to be a geek to understand this. You can be a marketer, you can be a lawyer, you can be a CEO from any industry. You don't have to be a CISO to understand the infamous USB drop attack. So I give examples of not only how the cyber attacks are successful, but it, how they're actually conducted. And you can do it in a non-technical way that resonates with uh, leaders. What I also think is interesting is that, yes, on one side, public opinion, how they view C-suite because now leaders and regulators are not, because you don't have to be a certified criminal. You can just be someone who wants to make quick money. You're going to join the Conti gang, for example, ransomware as a service. There's a whole enterprise affiliate business model. You just try to get money out of people as much as possible and then get a commission for it or pay a commission to the 
it's very decentralized as well. But the other thing I think as well is, which is why I also this, I started the emotional firewalls campaign, is the public opinion itself. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I was doing a consultancy with a client and I was just amazed how, how little disregard they had for data protection. The, what's, the private WhatsApp was installed on the computer. Excel ah. sheets were still being used with shareholders' data. Wow. And the only way that that was protected it was with the kind of, if someone had to close it so someone else can open it. And it was like, I'm like, oh my God. And then, you know, and then when I started talking about it, but the IT department was overloaded and they had also outsourced because they are then linked to centralized. And I understand from a fact that people are so busy and so overloaded. So it's, it, it is how can you make a habit out of it? Because it's basically your way of life. It's your children, it's your family, it's your money, it's your data. And I think people sometimes have no idea how little tweaks step-by-step can make a huge difference. I don't know if you can talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, it's hard to believe. To me and you, it's probably unthinkable to use a weak password. It's unthinkable to reuse your password. It's unthinkable to not use multi-factor authentication wherever you can. But we go back to the human factor. The vast majority of people are, are just because of how we're designed, they just want to use weak passwords. They want to reuse them. And multi-factor authentication is a real hassle for a lot of people. And my feeling is that uh, organizations, uh, particularly financial services company, banks and brokerages, they should not let their customers into their account unless it's a strong password and unless there's MFA enabled. And if if you don't want to do MFA, fine, do business with another bank. But um, it, it, it's just mind-boggling. And it's the simple stuff. Uh, 23andMe, the genetic testing company, uh, they had a breach where I think 5 million uh, users were affected. And 23andMe, they're saying that uh, it wasn't a breach of their systems, but their customers were reusing passwords. And so basically, it was a credential stuffing attack. To which I say, this was DNA genetic data. Why did 23andMe allow their users access to their account unless they had MFA? They made MFA optional. Why did they do that? And so yeah. it's, I just don't understand it. And we need organizations to definitely be more proactive. And I'm not saying if it's an online crossword puzzle where you sign in and you take a crossword puzzle and there's no data other than your crossword puzzle, maybe that doesn't need MFA. But for crying out loud, your DNA should be protected by a strong password with multi-factor authentication yeah. required, in my opinion. And and here is where relationship building really comes in and patience, because I was uh, helping a client roll out an IT collaboration tool, and I was dealing with stakeholders and also the kind of board members and who people, some people who did not, who were very skeptical, A, in yeah. implementing the IT tool, and then B, they had to install a, a multi-factor authentication, which was a bit of a nightmare because it involved steps. But we managed in the end, and we managed, and because, and I remember having this discussion with the IT guy who was quite reluctant because they have to do it. So it's just normal. I said, but you can't. You have to think from a user experience. You have to think right. from their map of the world. So build a relationship, help them. If you show that you care and you are there to help them, then they then they will actually. And the most skeptical ones turn to be more optimistic in the end because they they went 
beyond the face of resistance, the skepticism, but then there's the human element. Mm -hmm. And it's part, when we buy a new house, we have all kinds of problems in the beginning. I still have some problems in the beginning. So it's discomfort. It's how do you help people minimize the discomfort and go through it anyway. I also have, when I started with my MFA, it was a nightmare every time my phone and looking there. And now it's just, I don't, if if I don't do it, I'm like, oh, I'm missing something. It's not part of my life. Yeah, it's a good point you bring up, Nadja. There's the age-old battle of user convenience versus more cybersecurity. And it's always attention and trying to figure out in a digital transformation, what's, are you going to do more cyber? Are you going to do more user convenience? For me, I tend to be more of a sophisticated user. If I have an online account and they won't give me MFA as an option, I may not use the, I may not use that product, but it's a a matter of educating users. It's a matter of getting people to the point where they want more cybersecurity. And if companies do the digital transformation and they sell cybersecurity almost as a marketing tool to say to your customers, look how secure you're going to be with us. And oh, by the way, our competitor, not as secure. Look at us. You might, that might be a good way of getting more customers. Yeah, I love that. Exactly. We really have to change our perspective on how we view cybersecurity, which brings me to the next question is often, I think it's changing now slowly, but surely that cybersecurity is no longer seen as purely technical mm-hmm. or purely a CISO's responsibility, but mm-hmm. everyone's responsibility from your experience. Sorry, my uh, throat. I don't know if it's sure. a good question or not. <laughs> okay. Well, from your experience. What role do you see for C-suite leaders to become champions of cybersecurity within the organization? Because also often, and I think this is a bit presumptuous, but it's mm-hmm. we, we always hear, oh, the CISO needs to speak more business language for yeah. the, and I think they do. It just mm-hmm. it's easier to highlight what is a, a pain point for a lot of IT and security. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I've also seen C-suite leaders not wanting to do anything with IT. Sure. A couple of things. I think that I agree with you that the CISOs, there is a movement now to make them more business oriented. And most CISOs are not in the C-suite. They shouldn't. A lot of them report to the chief information officer, which is a conflict of interest. But be that as it may, they're usually, they can be VPs. They can be executive directors. They're not always in the C-suite. I think they should be elevated to the C-suite. I think they should be in there. And I agree, they probably should be a little bit more businessy, but I would also say that C-suite leaders and board members need to be a little bit more cyber. Whether you come from a marketing background or a legal background or a finance background, you can't just say, for example, if you're a CEO, hey, hey Frank, hey, Nadja, look, I, I don't like cyber. I don't like this IT stuff. But what I did is I hired the best IT person on the planet. I hired the best IT person on the planet and every quarter I meet with them and they tell me everything's great. So why do I need to know anything? Why do I need to know about cyber awareness? To which I say, then how do you know that person's not the worst IT person on the planet? If you don't have even a basic awareness of cyber awareness or some of the common attack vectors, how do you know what questions to ask your CISO? How do you know when the CISO really needs your help versus whether it's something maybe you don't need to support? If you really stick your head in the sand and don't want to know anything at all about cyber, it's my belief that you will not have an effective program. And then the other piece that goes into it, the hot, for me, the highest form of emotional intelligence is walking the walk and talking the talk. 
and mm -hmm. having integrity. And if you're a department leader and you don't believe in compliance or privacy or cybersecurity, and you're not following the cyber awareness and you're cutting corners, your staff is going to see that and they're going to follow you off the cliff. And if you're a CEO and you just don't believe in it uh, and you don't want to do it and you don't want to support it, that's going to come through to the entire workforce and you are going to have a poor cybersecurity culture. So it, 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 it's, it's incumbent upon um, leaders, not just in the C-suite, but executive leaders, board members, and even investors to displace their fear with um, understanding and just knowing cyber awareness, knowing some of the common uh, attack vectors uh, goes a long way to being able to walk the walk, talk the talk, and support the CISO and have a real cybersecurity program that's not full of holes like Swiss cheese. I agree with everything you, you said. I love the work. That, I think this is a nice, I mentioned it somewhere. I comment a lot on LinkedIn, so I forget where I come, what I comment, where I comment. Yeah. But one thing I, I said is the biggest challenge in building trust or it was an employee engagement actually, which is necessary for security culture is often leaders don't walk the talk. So then the employee is, why, why should I go out of my comfort zone to do more cyber hygiene if my manager or the big boss is not doing it either, right? And right. if you have this hierarchical structure where authority is privileged and exempt, that is showing internally. So people are not going to take it seriously. So you, from the top down, it has to be shown. It's not always happening. But if you don't have it from the top down, then you can rest assured that if as an employee, they see that the leaders don't have the best interest of the company at heart, why should they have the best interest of the company heart? And then we talk about quiet quitting, et cetera. So you made an excellent point. And uh, this brings me to almost the last question about communication. Mm -hmm. And I would love to hear from your own experience, if you have any anecdotes or stories on how this communication process looks like between top-down, up-down, when implementing, from your experience, implementing cybersecurity, and what are the things that C-suite can look for, whether it is a chief marketing officer trying to do due diligence or the CISO uh, themselves as well. I'd love to hear your experience because one of the challenges is we communicate, but we don't get the message across. Sure. I'm going to give a, throw out a couple of uh, fictionalized data privacy breaches, and then we can have the conversation. But I think that communication with C-suite leaders from the top down is very important. And on the healthcare field, uh, before I get into my examples, but in the healthcare field, many organizations have a concept called just culture. And we, have the, we try to instill a just culture because if we have a physician, it's really like from a patient safety or quality perspective. If we have a physician that's doing a procedure and making a mistake and harming a patient, we want that physician to tell us. Now, if the physician feels he or she's going to be fired or humiliated, they might not say anything and other physicians will make that mistake. So we have the concept of the just culture where if somebody makes a mistake and comes forward, we want to celebrate the fact that we are able to do a root cause analysis, fix the problem and help other, others in the organization with it and console the person that made the mistake because they probably feel terrible. Now, that doesn't mean if you make a horrible, egregious error, do something intentional, uh, we don't have a, a progressive discipline policy that, you know, up to and including termination. But in many cases, 
uh, it's an honest mistake that we can, it can be a teachable moment. And one example that I give in the healthcare field is we are taught um, to really be uh, helpers and we want to help everybody. And I could just see a cyber criminal just, you know, walking through the hospital, taking pictures, looking for PHI, putting bad USBs in computer ports, and nobody saying anything, nobody call, asking, calling a security, nobody doing anything because maybe they'll just say, hey, can I help you? And they'll just get them where they need to be to continue the cyber attack because we're taught to be helpful. And that's where the, the emotional firewalls are so important because we can teach people, hey, it's okay to say, why, why does this person not have a badge? It's okay to help the person and then call security. And then another example is uh, sometimes you'll have a nurse or a doctor, somebody post something on Facebook about a patient and they accidentally post da patient data and you have a breach. Are we going to automatically fire that person? Or what was the reason behind it? Were they trying to celebrate the department? Were they trying to motivate the patient? And again, it may be rather than punish the individual, maybe this is something that we can look at from a just culture perspective and celebrate the event that we can help other people and then console the person that made the mistake. If we have a culture of punishment, mistakes just aren't going to get reported. So I think one, one way that leaders communicate from the top down is what's their culture like? Is it a culture of bullying? Is it a culture of punishment? Is it a culture of progressive discipline where we can have a just culture where mistakes are tolerated and root cause analyses are celebrated so that we can fix things going forward? Now, to tie that into investors, because that's a good point that you made, if you are an investor in a company, you really want to do your due diligence because if, if it's a poor cybersecurity program, do you really want to see your investment go down in flames when the system is locked with ransomware and like Colonial Pipeline, you're paying $4.4 million to get a decryption key to unencrypt your network, let alone all the fines and penalties you're going to have to pay. So uh, it really behooves investors to do their due diligence and really promote, we want a strong cybersecurity program. We want to make sure it's effective. We want to make sure you're doing everything in your power to repel cyber attack. Great points you made. And especially when we talk about fear, I love it because the culture is really important. When we look at organizations who have large power distance, which mm -hmm. means there's a quite a hierarchical approach and you just don't approach the boss of your boss or no. you have this fear. This is how CEO frauds come to play. And there was even a study I read was quite interesting, logical, common sense. I don't think it's great that they did studies about it, but I think we can also use our common sense. We use fear. Mm -hmm. What are people going to do? They are not going to change their behavior to reduce the risk in getting scammed or being opening a door for a data breach. They're going to do everything they can to reduce the fear they're feeling, right? Yeah. This is why this, the, the speed issue, if you are working for a manager who is fear monitoring or who is using yep. authority for punishment, and when the salespeople, especially now, they're going to try to meet their deadlines as fast as possible, speed yep. over security. They, you can talk about them for hours or days and they can do hundreds of cybersecurity awareness videos. It's not going to register because no. they don't care, but they care about their manager who has the authority and the power to promote them or demote them, to humiliate them or to appreciate them. And I think understanding how people, the employee experience and engagement 
in order to incorporate. I think what we did in NATO when NATO was, uh, we, I still say we, it was 18 years, but when NATO was adopted as operational domain, we had several works of strength. And cyber was actually ingrained in every work of strength. So it was not seen as a separate program, but it was actually ingrained in mm -hmm. everything we did. And that's how we changed the culture. That's how we got the political decision-making body on board by actually taking them into the labs and see and say, mm -hmm. we, we, a missile is shot and you have six seconds in order to stop it by another missile. Mm -hmm. And with cyber comes along. So then the people understand that IT yeah. is a nervous system. And so I think that everything you said is so important when it comes to the emotion. You have some countries even where there, there, there is, it's a culture of respect. You just don't talk to the boss or you don't question things, especially when you don't question things. So how are you going to teach people to be assertive? I always mm -hmm. say there's a difference between being kind and being nice. I'm yeah. very kind, but people don't play with me. Yeah, yeah. But I'm still very kind, right? I can yeah. say no in a very kind way. Yeah. But when you're nice, you're trying to please, to be pleased. Correct. And then criminals, they have high levels of empathy mm -hmm. from a narcissistic point of view. How would how can I scan you? How what mm -hmm. can I get out of you? And then you and, and exactly what you said in the hospital when nurses especially or they tend to have high levels of empathy, even mm -hmm. too much empathy, because mm -hmm. of patient care, because of how they care. Now, then it's, it feels literally physical discomfort, counterintuitive, to question someone. And here's where you can teach them. It's actually, you can harmonize the two, not make it feel so conflictual, and still be quite kind Mm -hmm. and not let anyone pass through. Now, if they get aggressive, then you have a protocol in place. Yeah. Everyone knows what to do. and that, But there, this comes with emotion. You have to train yeah. people's emotions as well. So, Well, it's a good point, Nadja. And when you think about, in my own field, uh, being a chief compliance and privacy officer, we would do audits all the time. We would do compliance audits, internal audits, and fraud audits. And we very rarely caught, aud caught fraud. We very rarely caught compliance issues or whatever. Most of our the times that we had these issues, they were reported to us. They were reported to our hotline or tips. Um, people come forward. The highest form I thought of culture was when um, people felt empowered to come to me directly and didn't want to be anonymous through a hotline. But the point is most frauds, most cyber events, most privacy breaches, they're going to be found by employees first, found by the nurse that you were talking about or found by somebody. And if those employees don't report it, it might not be found in the breach might be a small breach of 10 records were, were breached. But if no one reports it, by the time we find out, it might be a million. And so people reporting and coming forward and feeling empowered, whether it's they, they I respect my boss, but I've got to report this anyway, or I'm, I may be afraid, but I'm going to report this anyway. Um, having a culture where people can come forward and not feel afraid and be able to say, I think there was a breach or I think there was a cyber event. I think there was fraud. It's so important because most companies will not be able to proactively find these problems on their own. They need people, they need their workforce to report it. Exactly. And that's why you need to have a culture of care. People mm -hmm. actually care and a culture of trust. And if you don't teach people to still have respect for their leadership and still have respect for hierarchy, 
but to learn assertiveness and kindness. Mm -hmm. So in order to push back. Yeah. As uh, I could talk to you for another hour about this, there are so many questions racing through my mind. Maybe we should do another podcast specifically, actually, how we can help people yeah. become more and more aware. And, and I would love actually to do another podcast with you, but That's then my... from the mind of the cyber attacker, how <laughs> cyber criminals think and how people can actually, so I think that would be a great podcast. Mm -hmm. But for now, what would be your biggest takeaway or key message, your top one or top three you choose for C-suite leaders, board members, investors who are not necessarily cyber technical or cyber savvy? Mm -hmm. What are some of the first things they can start with that is easy for them to implement and to start building that cyber hygiene culture or healthy security culture, as I call it? I think the biggest thing first is for C-suite uh, leaders and board members and investors to make sure that they are educated and to make sure that they understand basic cyber hygiene. And by basic cyber hygiene, simple stuff like only using strong passwords that are never shared and reused, always using multi-factor authentication, encrypting your devices. So if you lose a laptop, cyber criminals can't get the data. Having a data backup plan. So if your network is down by ransomware, you can get your network up and running again. And then making sure you have a comp comprehensive cybersecurity awareness program for your entire workforce. And so just the, the basics of cyber awareness, I think the C-suite leaders need to understand that and then um, educate themselves about some of the basic ways their company gets attacked. For example, phishing, they can have 10,000 employees get an email. Someone is pretending a cyber criminal is pretending they're from HR and they ask the employees to take a survey and you can have 10,000 employees delete that email, but all it takes is one person to answer that fake survey and down goes the network or one person to click on that malicious link and down goes the network. Understanding basic things like cyber criminals will, will try to get into your company and install a bad USB into your computer port or trick an employee to do that. Basic things like cyber criminals, they find uh, software vulnerabilities that your vendors have. And if you haven't installed a patch, the race is on. They're trying to get into your network through that software vulnerability. And if you haven't installed the patch, you're going to get a ransomware injection. And you don't need to be, like I say, a cyber geek. You don't need to be a tech person. These are just the basics. They're not that hard to understand. But it's the basics that are, are it's failing in, in implementing basic cyber awareness is where some of the absolute biggest cyber attacks have been successful. Companies yeah. have been credential stuffed. All they had to do was implement M MFA. Uh, companies have been uh, attacked because they didn't install their patches when uh, a known vulnerability was out there for months on end. Just learning the basics. And then from there, once the, the, the C-suite leaders and, and the board of, of directors and even investors understand the basics, they will be able to understand better what the CISO is saying. They will be able to ask better questions. Yes. They will be able, when someone says, my CISO is the best CISO on the planet, I can believe them. If they are steeped in cyber, cyber hygiene, I can believe them. But if they don't know anything, then I, I think they're going to have a, a, a cybersecurity program that may be nothing more than a book on the shelf, but is not going to repel even the most basic cyber attack from the most yeah. basic, simple cyber criminal. 
Yeah, you're so on point. And just one one last note from my own experience in NATO is where uh, we have, I was part of the, my last position, part of the office that was translating to the political and military decision-making uh, and budget committees within the NATO headquarters. Because I think we underestimate if you have a CISO, so they are not only technically educated in terms of their mission, and you are absolutely right, the conflict of interest for a CIO is innovative, yeah. risk, risk tolerance, and the other one is risk averse. Right. But they have this mindset in order to continually mission assurance, information assurance, threat mm -hmm. awareness, minimize risk. Then they have to lead their teams who are already understaffed and continuously under attack, not only by the threats that they face on the computer, but also about the we can be quite outkind against IT and the pressure we face because it's a customer-facing employee position as well. So then they have to manage that. Then they have to manage their peers in yes. trying to convince them to get your staff to do the basics at least. Mm -hmm. Then they have to talk in meetings if they get a chance, like you said, if they are reporting to the CIO, then it has to go to the CIO. And then things get lost in translations, depending on what the CIO wants or not wants to say, he understands or doesn't understand. And then it triples to the C-suite. And then you expect them to be superheroes and also communicating sign. Yeah. Come on, they are human beings as well. So yeah. I think you really need to take a step back and how can we make it a collective responsibility and, and we even had an office or a person dedicated for translating this, the helicopter view to the different service line and departments, uh, which relieved the chief uh, information officer and our security people a bit when it came to cyber. So I think we have to, we cannot, like Einstein said, and I'm sure I'm not phrasing it correctly. Maybe you can correct me. We can't solve today's problem with the same thinking we've created them or yeah. something along that ways. Yeah. And this comes with discomfort. It comes with having a growth mindset. It comes with challenging our own beliefs, mm -hmm. which is not always a nice feeling. But if you don't, you're going to stay, you're going to be behind the curve. Mm -hmm. You're going to be obsolete in no time if you're a small business, if you face a data breach, 60% exactly. don't even recover. And these are things not to fear, make people fear. But I do think we need to find a healthy balance. It's not, you cannot just see, sit back and relax. You have yeah. to have some kind of fear that sparks enough curiosity that you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and seek understanding with yeah. that said. So Frank, this was wonderful. I'm definitely going to invite you for another episode because I would love to have one where we dive in how cyber criminals think. And, I would love and, to do that. We'll, yeah, we'll run I would through love how to do cyber criminals well. actually conduct an attack and yeah. try to uh, exploit the human factor. I think that would be a, a lot of fun. And again, thank you for inviting to be, me to be on your podcast. I really enjoyed it. How can people uh, find you and connect with you? The best way to connect with me is to go on LinkedIn and find my LinkedIn profile. Uh, you can connect with me or follow me. And once you do that, a, a bell will appear next to my smiling photo and if you click on the bell, every time I do a post, you'll get notified about it. And I post frequently on topics on cybersecurity, data privacy compliance, but I also like to post about dogs and records and vinyl albums. So it's fun stuff as well. And you can interact with me as well if you connect or follow me on LinkedIn. Yes. Uh, next time I'll post a picture with my bunny and <laughs> we can have like competition. <laughs> 
I want to see that. And the, the bunny is actually waiting because it's like I have a boy and a bunny. And then the boy is now almost asleep. I'm pretty sure he's still awake. He's taking advantage. And okay. then the bunny is waiting for me to open the door so he can run freely in the living room. And I'm behind him, doesn't eat any cables and causes... Okay. And, and last thing before we go, the bunny is an excellent social engineering expert. So he comes beneath my desk. He gives me cuddles and licks me. And so I have like very low soft emotions and don't yeah, pay attention. Yeah. As soon as I'm not paying attention, he slides inside and go eats the cables. He does it every time. They're, they're smart animals. They are. Talented animals. He does it every time. He comes to see us. He gives uh -huh. us attention. And as soon as we look away, he slips away to go eat something that he knows he's not allowed to. So, He's exploiting uh, the human factor. Please give so him an extra treat for me. <laughs> Thank you. I will very well bring him as a mascot for cybersecurity <laughs> awareness. <laughs> Thank you, Frank. And thank you to all our listeners. And I look forward to the follow-up episode. Thank you. I appreciate it.